Well, good morning. Uh, it is a blessing to be here. Uh, I am thankful for what the Lord is doing uh, in and through this church. Uh, and um, he mentioned the Exemplary Husband book. It's, it, that is not an autobiography. I am not the Exemplary Husband. Uh, it's a standard of uh, Christ-likeness when you look at what a husband is to be and to do. So I'm still working at it, um, and will till the Lord returns, uh, there, or there'll be the expired husband, uh, if I don't uh, make it by then. But I, I wanted to start uh, this morning, I thought it might be helpful since not all of you were here on Friday and Saturday, to give you sort of a quick review of the high points of the uh the topic on decision-making and the will of God. And if you have your Bible, if you'll just turn to the back of uh, the end of Hebrews. There are numerous verses on the will of God. But this is one that kind of sets the stage for uh, even the topic. At the very end, the writer of Hebrews has a a benediction, and he says uh, in chapter 13, Verse 20, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Uh, Just very important that we do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. Let me see here. Uh, We'll see if this uh, starts working. Clicking. There we go. Okay, now we're up. We make thousands and thousands of decisions every day. I would venture to say we probably have made thousands just to get here this morning. Uh, When the alarm went off and you said, is it really this time? Um, but we make thousands. Uh, some are obviously weightier decisions than others, but everything that we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do for the glory of God. Uh, because of that, uh, J.I. Packer wrote a, a, a statement. He said, wrong ideas about God's guidance lead to wrong conclusions about the right thing to do. If we're not thinking right, Biblically, we will not make wise decisions. We will not do the will of God if we don't know his revealed or moral will. And uh, I encounter this a lot. I'm in the area of uh, discipleship, intensive discipleship, biblical counseling. Um, Oftentimes, they're there wanting help because they're not making wise decisions. And if we don't help them, on what God's word does say about various topics and what God's revealed will is, they'll be back again and again and again uh, because of poor and, uh, and foolish decisions. So we first took a look on Friday night behind the scenes, just looking at the importance of decision making. And when you look at that topic in the Bible, there's more about doing God's will than there is about trying to find what it is. You don't have to go on a search outside of Scripture to find out what his will is. He's revealed it. 
So the, all the different passages, and we just read one there in Hebrews 13, do the will. Uh, it's all about doing the, don't be foolish, don't be ignorant, uh, Paul says in Ephesians, uh, to do the will of God. And the various practices that people use, and we looked at some of the things that are being written today on uh, how to try to listen for God's voice outside of the Bible and all kinds of practices that people get involved in. I think well-meaning people, I mean well-meaning, but it's not according to knowledge, according to Scripture. It's just practices that people have uh, picked up or heard and practiced. Now, we also look at when people say, well, it's true. Uh, what I want to do is true and it's factual. Well, says who? And this is a very popular statement being pushed in a lot of different universities, uh, Christian universities, is that all truth is God's truth as if all truth was on the equal plane of certainty and authority. So they would look at, well, there's truth in how uh, I think and feel, intuition. There's truth out there in the soft sciences of philosophy, sociology, psychology. And there's truth in the area of science, the empirical method of science. And there's scientism, too, which is a very different, it's a religion. So there's hard science, and then they have the Bible. And people in, in a lot of different schools and even in churches will say, well, there's truth everywhere, just pick and choose what you want, as if it's all equal in certainty and authority, and it's not. When God gave us truth, he gave it a, a truth on descending levels of certainty and authority. And God's word is absolutely true, absolutely certain, absolutely authoritative. Uh, it's, it's inspired by God, it's breathed out by God, it's authoritative, and it is totally sufficient to be saved and to be sanctified. Totally sufficient. You don't want to add to something that's perfect. If you add to perfection, you subtract from it. Very important. Uh, one uh, author said, and whatever you add to the Bible becomes more important to you than the Bible. And I've seen that. I've seen people, they want to add something to the Bible, whether it's psychology, whether it's uh, whatever the, the philosophy or thought is, they want to add it to the Bible, and now that becomes more important to them than the Bible. When you add to the Bible, you subtract from it. It's absolutely sufficient and perfect. Then you descend uh, a good ways. Now, this is God's revelation. This is breathed out by God. Then you come up to what man comes up with and discovers, and I'm, I'm thankful for it, uh, the hard sciences. But that can change from day to day. Uh, different things that uh, I remember one physician told me in med school, they told him uh, a good portion of what you will be taught will change by the time you graduate. And he just wanted to know what part that was so he wouldn't study it so so intently. But so it's on it's decreasing on levels of certainty and authority, then you decrease even more in the area of soft sciences. A man studying man, usually unsaved man studying unsaved man and telling us what's normal. Uh, there's some problems with that uh, because of sin, and it's infected our thinking. It's human wisdom. And then you go even to the worst level. The, the worst level of certainty and authority is truth that you come up with. Uh, when you get into intuition, uh, you originate this kind of truth and you verify it from within. It's very dangerous. 
It's the worst level. But in our culture, that level, those levels there have completely flipped. Uh, they're upside down. In our culture today, what's most important is what you feel. And the whole transgender issue is how you feel. If I feel like a woman, I'm a woman. Or gender fluid, I could go back and forth throughout the day. It's against science. See, and it's against the Bible. This is the kind of culture that we're in. It's completely upside down with certainty and authority. So it's good for us to be reminded again, we start with God's word. That is our authority. And then it's descending levels of certainty and authority. Now, in determining God's will, we have to be careful here. We have to study God's word carefully. 2 Timothy 2.15, a verse many of you uh, have uh, memorized and over the years. But we want to be faithful in how we handle God's word. And don't be haphazard with it. And don't just pick a, a verse. Uh, and you just say, well, this is God's will for me today. Well, all of God's word is for us. But not all of God's word is directly to you. When you get into narrative, there are verses that are talking to a patriarch. It's talking to the nation of Israel, maybe. Or there's verses about the church, and that would be for us. You just have to be careful. Uh, Narrative in the Bible is not normative for us today. Narrative, which is about 60% of our Bible, is what has happened. What God did in, in, in history, the main subject of narrative is God. But you don't go into narrative and say, well, I just sit at my breakfast table because God brought manna to the Israelites. He'll be, bring food to me in my backyard. You, you dare not use narrative as normative in your life. And most abused uh, things that are said, abusive in the sense of to scripture, are people jumping into narrative. And saying, well, he told Abraham to go out and not, he didn't know where he was going, so he just told me to, to go out and do the same thing. I'm going to go out, I don't know where I'm going. That, that's a wrong use of scripture. And so the very principles of hermeneutics or Bible study methods is that we study it carefully, we take the literal principle wherever you can, unless there's different genres of scripture where you have to use prophetic, what's being said there, or poetic. But most, God wanted to communicate to us. And so you wanted to be clear. Just take it literally where you can. Then the historical principle, what it meant to the authors back then, the human authors that God's spirit moved to write. Then the grammatical principles of the who's speaking here, what's the context, what's the subject, what's the verb. And then you want to look at what does all of scripture teach about any particular subject. And that will keep you out of uh, some trouble there. And then the practical principle, uh, the application of God's word to our life. Hearing does not equal transformation. So hearing alone does not equal transformation. We have to be doers of God's word, not hearers only. And when we're building a model of how to live our life, to know God's uh, revealed will is the canon, the 66 books of the Bible. And from there, we just carefully study it. We want to look at themes in the Bible, uh, truth as it's presented in certain sections of uh, throughout the Bible. And then we want to look at all of what Scripture says about topics. 
And then we want to make sure we apply that. We don't want to abort the word. We want to make sure the Holy Spirit takes it all the way to change and growth into Christ's likeness for his glory. This is a Dr. John Frame uh, who wrote, Theology is a spiritual task. And when you think about counseling, counseling is, if the essence of, of counseling is theological. It's not psychological. It's theological. We have to have the right view of man, man's problem, and man's solution. Secular psychology starts with man as an animal. Denies God. They're going to get it all wrong. Man, man's problem, and man's solution. We'll get some observations right, but that'll be it. So counseling is fundamentally theological. Man, man's problem, and man's solution. So theology is a spiritual task. He says theology is application. All the times we read and we hear God's word should move to how do I change and grow? And then he says it is not for information, for information's sake. It should never be a vehicle of intellectual pride. So again, information alone, when we're reading scripture, doesn't just equal transformation if I read it. I have to meditate on it into application with the Holy Spirit's help. Then we looked at some key definitions. With God's will, you have his decretive sovereign will, uh, two aspects of God's will. This is the one that we don't know ahead of time. God is planning everything. He's decreed from the, the beginning, from the end, everything in between. Everything works according to his will in Ephesians 1.11. He's in charge of that. He is sovereign, and we can trust him. He is good and wise and perfect and loving. And so that's his sovereign will. And he's got it all designed. It's all working exactly according to his plan. And providence is how he carries it out. He moves circumstances and people around to make sure his will is done. Now that, again, we do not know ahead of time unless it's in the Bible in the form of prophecy. But what he has given to us, the aspect of his will is his moral will or revealed will, the scripture. That is what he has given to us. And all the different verses that talk about know his will, do his will, it's talking about this, the scripture. And God has given us this. Everyone has this. You don't need anything outside of the Bible to know God's will. So we all have it. Now we're to read it, study it, meditate on it, and seek to apply it, and that would be doing God's will. Uh, And it comes in the form of commands and principles. Just a good reminder, not everything is a command. Principles are more of a compass. It gives us direction, some general light, and commands are not optional uh, for believers. One thing that we talked about on Saturday was this um, area of mysticism. Uh, This is like a tsunami in the evangelical church today. Uh, People are hijacking God's name and putting it on everything that they have and everything they think and every impression they have. They put God's name on it. It's a form of identity theft. You're taking God's name and you're putting it on anything, any impression, any desire, any thought you have. Uh, It's a form of taking God's name in vain. We better keep God's name with what God says. And you don't have 
the Word of God, and then you have, well, God told me, and God did all these other things. Just keep God, that God has limited himself to his Word. We don't limit the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has limited himself. Faith comes by what? By hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. How are we sanctified? Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy Word is truth. He inspired the word, he's preserved the word, and he will use the word in our lives. So mysticism, the essence of mysticism, as one theologian said, uh, is to separate the operation of the Holy Spirit from God's objective word. As soon as you move the Holy Spirit away from his word, you are now into subjectivity and mysticism. It's subjectivity in, a, in the area of religion, and it's mysticism. Very uh, well known back in the Roman Catholic era of the mystics. Um, most of them, were, well, they weren't saved to begin with. And they, ha- they thought they had this spirituality, but it wasn't according to Scripture. It's a pseudo-spirituality. They talk the name of God, but it's not what God has said. And the only way we know it's God is that he has said and he has verified it in his word. Once you leave the Bible, there is no way to prove it's God. And there's no no safeguard from error once you leave the Bible. Very important. And it is very popular today to talk about all kinds of things. And just rather than... God's people should just say, I had an impression last night. Or I had a thought this morning, rather than saying, God gave me this, and God gave me this thought, unless it's rightly handled and it's black and white or red letter, uh, properly, God, I'm not putting God's name on it. Could God have uh, given me an impression or a thought or something? It's possible, but there's no way to verify it. We need to go from what's less sure to what's more sure, as Peter said in 2 Peter 1, verse 19. Move away from the emphasis on experiences to the more sure word of God. That's what he told the, the listeners as he wrote um, 2 Peter. Now, what not to do? Now, here are all kinds of ways that people, and I say I used a lot of these ways, I didn't even know what God's will was for my life. I didn't know it was all recorded here and just read the commands and principles and make your decisions. I was looking for something, some impression, some voice behind me, some still small voice. I was listening. That's where I was at because that's what I was taught. In all kinds of ways. Don't misuse the scripture. Um, That is... it happens by well-meaning people. I'll read to you. This is a these two Christian psychiatrists who wrote a book on how to have uh, no worry in your life. It's called Worry-Free Living. This is what they write. We suggest setting aside 15 minutes in the morning and another 15 minutes in the evening for active worry. If concerns surface during other times of the day, the person should jot them down on a card and vow to deal with them during the designated period. Is that what the Bible says? Have two designated times for worry? In the, 
that would be like me saying, you know, I used to steal all the time, but not, not anymore. I just have two heist times. It's one is at seven to seven fifteen, and seven forty-five to eight at night is my my stealing times. Uh, everything else I think about stealing, I just write it down on a card and vow to deal with them during my two designated period time. See, this is this is what happens when you don't start with the Bible. Is that's behavior modification, and then they call it worry-free living, but you're still worrying a half hour a day. So this is the, the trouble. Uh, do not misuse the Bible. Uh, start with Scripture, handle it well, and then advice. You need to check advice out. Uh, we went through all of these different methods, and you can get the, uh, the tape uh, that was done for that, but People set up conditions, they put God to the test, uh, they're praying for open, closed doors, and that gets into total, uh, how do you interpret a closed door or an open door? And this most popular one is the inner feelings, desires, and impressions, which that was not normative at all. Matter of fact, there's not even an instance of you see that in the Bible. But that's how many Christians are led today by impressions, uh, checks in their spirit, and all the kind of things that you hear, but it's not the way God led his people. The normative way was the word of God. And then led by the spirit is going in the direction uh, that the spirit is taking us in Christ-likeness and holiness. So we went through all these different things, and people talk about peace, but that's never used for decision-making in the Bible. Um, Devices looking for signs. Some people isolate themselves when they make major weighty decisions, and that's dangerous. Or they're looking at dreams and trying to interpret dreams, or waiting on the Lord. And we saw that wait actually is the Hebrew word that means to trust. Uh, You trust God and get moving. You don't sit passively still. And um, all the the various ways. So they go on, uh, many of them. And then there's even et cetera for those that have a unique way of making decisions that we didn't cover. So how do we make decisions? Well, we have to make sure we're building properly. We um, talked about some building programs uh, that were even fables. But in 1 Corinthians 3, the Spirit of God through Paul tells us that let each one take care how you build. And you build your life, you build ministry on the foundation of Jesus Christ in that passage. And in the context, it's talking about human wisdom versus God's wisdom. And that is a sobering phrase. Let each one take care how you build. Because one day we will, all that we do, our decision-making ministry uh, and living for the Lord, will all be tested, is what that passage is talking about. We'll all be tested uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. So be careful how you make your decisions and how you make your choices to do what you believe pleases the Lord. So here with a suggested method, looking at the scriptures, the prerequisites is if you want to know what God's will is and you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, totally trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, we went over the main elements of the gospel, of God and then man, uh, created man and in his image, and then man chose to say, but I want and I think. Uh, Derailed right there in Genesis 3. 
God said, this is what I want you to do and not do. And Adam said, yeah, but I want and I think. And that will get us in trouble all the time. It's just, what does God say? What does God want? Not my will, but his will. And then aren't we thankful what God did in the state of uh, helpless man, hopeless man, in his sin as he sent Christ uh, totally righteous and what he accomplished on the cross for our sins of those that would believe and trust in him uh, in his resurrection. Then we talked what it means to repent and believe. And then there's a warning for those who reject the Lord. So we went through all of that. Uh, we uh, looked at the passage that when the Lord saves us, it's that we no longer live for ourselves, our own advantage habitually, but now we're seeking to live habitually for the Lord. We still struggle with the flesh. And, and uh, Carrie talked about that as well, that the battle between uh, following the Spirit of God towards Christ-likeness and the battle of our flesh and our desires. But we're to live for the Lord now, not for ourselves. So, the, here was... Uh, uh, the method that we saw, at least looking at the scriptures, we submit our will to the Lord's. That's where you begin. You gather all the information of a decision. Now, the weightier the decision, the more time should be invested in the, the more weightier decisions in our life. Then we start with, what does God command about the choice I have to make? And then, what are biblical principles in God's word about the decision I need to make? And then, if all is going well there, then what would I like to do? At that point. And then if you, you go, well, I'm kind of stuck. I'm still not sure. Then I have to think through, is my is it possible I may be sinning in this choice? Our conscience has to be uh, clear and clean with the scripture. Or I just need more data that I didn't get about the decision. And then you go back and you go on up and then you make your decision. It's, it's stabilizing. Um, and then the fact to know this, that when you get to the end there and you make your decision, that's what God holds us to, to follow his word and to make decisions based on his word. He, in his sovereign will, will redirect our steps. So he sees me making a decision and I'm going this way and he in his sovereign plan over my life, and you don't have many plans of your life, you only have one. And you are smack dab in it. God, you haven't missed his decreed plan for your life. Now, maybe we have violated his revealed will, but you'll never be out of his decreed will. And if he sees me going this way and I'm trying to follow the scriptures, faith, and stepping on commands and principles, and he's, he's going, but I want you going this direction, he'll redirect my steps providentially through circumstances or with people. He'll providentially redirect my steps. Proverbs 16.9, a man's heart plans his way, but God redirects his steps. And he can turn a king like channels of water. But this is what he's asking us to do. This is what he holds us to. Know his word, his revealed will, and then follow that, and then trust him and his sovereignty uh, to change our path if it's not in keeping uh, with his decreed plan. Now, what is God's will when we are going through a very difficult trial? So you, I think you all have a handout or it's part of your booklet. And so in the time remaining, I want us to take a look at a passage. What if we're in a trial? What is God's will if I'm in a very severe trial? 
Well, this was Paul's situation in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians 12. This is a letter written, uh, another letter written to Corinth. This was the church that uh, drove Paul to his knees and kept him there. Uh, that kind of a church. There were good things that were happening in that church. Uh, Timothy came back with a message of what was happening, some good things. Uh, some people have repented. Uh, and there's some troubling things, so some false teachers, super apostles that he talks about in chapter 11 and 12. But here, what's happened is the false teachers have challenged Paul to a duel. And the weapon of choice is experiences. They brag about all their experiences, and Paul doesn't talk about his experiences. What does Paul talk about? Jesus. Wherever he goes, he boasts in, in Jesus. He's just talking about Jesus. And they're challenging him. They're saying, if you were a true apostle, you would be talking about your experiences. And he goes, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to talk about any experiences, but I'm going to have to do it for the sake of the church, to not have Christians misled uh, at the church at Corinth. And so he starts in chapter 11, he's talking about all kinds of experiences. Suffering, up in chapter 11, he talks about being... uh, lowered in a basket at the end of chapter 11 and escaped. And then in chapter 12, he says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up uh, to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast. Except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And so, he says, the passage we'll look at here in the the time remaining, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So in your notes that you have, I want us to take a look at some lessons that we can learn. Uh, does God want us always to be delivered out of painful situations? Anytime we're in a trial, in a painful situation, does God, is it God's will that we are always delivered, immediate deliverance? And the answer is no. Uh, when you look at the major theme of the scripture, you'll find God does deliver his people from time to time, or a nation. But 
majority of times, it, it's not immediate deliverance. As I mentioned, a lot of what I do is in the area of counseling, intensive discipleship, counseling. And uh, as I sit down with people, and sometimes I'll just ask them questions, sometimes it's on a form that they fill out, and it's, what is the issue that brings you here? What is it that you're wanting help with? And so they, uh, they'll write, and sometimes it's a long explanation. Uh, one time, uh, the shortest one I, I had was uh, a wife who said, I'm 39, my husband's 12. And I, I looked at him, and he looked like he was 45 years old. And I said, do you know what your wife wrote? And he said, no. I said, well, I'm going to tell you. She says she's 39 and you're 12. I wasn't, I didn't know what's going to happen now. Uh, is he going to get upset? What's he going to do? And he just looked at her, he looked at me, he looked at her, looked at me, and then he went, <laughs> yeah, she's right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> got some work to do. But the second question that I ask the individuals is, okay, here's the, the problem, and it's either a sin issue or a trial. Right, so it's usually what you're struggling with, either a sin issue or a trial. The second question is, what have you done about this? The number one answer is, I prayed about it. Number one answer, across the board, I prayed about it. My follow-up question is, what have you prayed? If you're in a difficult marriage, what have you been praying? Lord, take him away, take her away, <laughs> take the kids away, take you know somebody away. Uh, but it's typically prayers of deliverance. Lord, take me out of this. So in a difficult trials, as we see Paul, the Apostle Paul in here in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, he's praying for deliverance. So let's look at some uh, lessons that we can learn from this passage. All right? The first one uh, is there in verse 7. Uh, he says here, so to keep me from becoming conceited, and then this phrase, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Uh, we realize that God's goodness, now here's the thing, God blessed uh, the Apostle Paul with some experiences. More than likely, it was right after he was uh, God converted him, Possibly in the Arabian desert, he was taught by the Lord, and he had some experiences. He said, 14 years ago, this happened. He hasn't mentioned it to anyone until now. 14 years, he kept silent about this, which kind of shocks me. I would think that he showed up with the other apostles, and they were a little apprehensive of him. I would think he would have talked about these things. Yeah, well, the Lord taught me in the desert, and I tell you some things that uh, ha happened. I was caught up in the paradise. Uh, but he didn't. Now he brings it up. We all have been blessed by God in some ways. That's, that's what I want to push uh, or, or we take from this. We all have been blessed by God in some ways. You say, well, you don't know my life. Anything above hell is a blessing. And when you start thinking about our blessings... We have been blessed. If you're in Christ, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Uh, salvation, eternal life, 
You think about, uh, you have a church like this, faithful preaching and teaching and counseling from the Word of God. I mean, you have friends and family. Don't forget all the blessings that God has given us. Now, here's the thing. In, in, the, in the soil of blessings in our life, do you know what should germinate and grow there? Humility. But you know what can happen in the soil of blessings and success and, and um, your abilities and various things that maybe God has blessed you with? Pride can germinate and grow in the soil of blessings. And that's what's going on here. He was blessed, uh, even as an apostle, with some experiences. And God was going to not allow pride to germinate and grow there. But that can happen to all of us. And we see even in Deuteronomy 8, where he's, he told the nation of Israel, I'm going to bring you into a land. Uh, you did not cultivate this land. You didn't build those cities. You didn't plant all of those uh, trees, fig trees, all of And you're going to come into this land, he told Israel. And you're going to think, by my own hand, I did this. And the warning is, you're going to forget me, God says. And you're going to get proud uh, and think, from me, by me, and to me belong all things. Sort of like Nebuchadnezzar on his rooftop. So be careful on this one. God has blessed us, all of us, in some ways. Is humility growing there, saying, Lord, I don't deserve a thing but hell. I am so thankful for everything you brought in my life. Or is pride growing there? From me, by me, and to me belong some things. Very dangerous. We just have to realize that pride can germinate and grow there when humility should. And humility is the only mindset that magnifies Christ. Secondly, and this is in the same verse, God always has the perfect remedy to guard us from our potential uselessness and fruitlessness. He knows how we can be the most fruitful and useful as his children, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. And so twice in this verse, he says, so to keep me from. Paul did not have a pride problem. It was to keep Paul from getting proud. Twice it says that. The book ends of the verse. It was to keep him from. It was his God's remedy of love and care. And it may be that some trials have come into your life and you're going, what did I do wrong? It may not be that you've done something wrong. It may be to keep us from doing something wrong. It's preventive. And it's God's goodness and love and care that he does this. Now, maybe some of you have gone, no, I, I violated his word and now I'm suffering consequences. Well, there's grace there too. God gives grace and you, you can ask for forgiveness and repent and by his spirit change. But many times it's, it's to prevent us. It's his remedy. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, it was good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. God is always, and you get into some theological terms, he's always the remote cause of everything that's happening. It's part of his decreed plan. He's not the author of sin, but he'll use sin. He'll use Satan. He'll use Joseph's wicked brothers to accomplish his good and holy and perfect plan. 
So don't ever blame God for, in the sense of that he's the author of sin. He's not. That he'll use Satan, as he did with Job. He'll, he'll use a messenger of Satan to buffet one of his children, the Apostle Paul. One uh, theologian said, Is there a single servant of Christ who cannot point to some thorn in the flesh, visible or private, physical or inner man, from which he has prayed to be released from, but which has been given him by God to keep him humble and therefore fruitful in his service? I rarely run into anyone anymore uh, who God has been using for years in, in some way in, in his ministry, in his uh, the church, that you get close to them and you're going to hear of some issue, some trial in their life, that God just keeps that person humble. It may be a physical issue. It may be a, 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 a child that's wayward. It may be a spouse. Some area, some issue that just keeps us humble and therefore useful for the Lord. I, I, I don't run into anybody and get to know them very long before I hear of something where God makes sure that in the blessings and his goodness, uh, that pride doesn't germinate and grow there. Well, what is this thorn? We don't know. 16 different speculations throughout church history. I tend to think, because the past tense, he, it was given me, he says, this thorn in the flesh, it's still present, and it's a, a, a literal, sharp, a painful thing. It literally strike with a fist. It hurts. And I know that with all the different speculations, people have said, well, maybe it's migraines, maybe it's ear trouble, maybe it's malaria, maybe it's malta fever, maybe it's leprosy, and on it goes. And some think it's the false teachers in chapter 11. I just, it doesn't really matter what I think. The, the Bible doesn't say what it is. But I tend to lean that it is something very painful and literal. Uh, some physical ailment that he had. I don't believe it was the, the false teachers that he just heard about from Timothy. Because... It says, to keep me from getting elated 14 years prior. 14 years prior, he had these revelations. And to keep me from, he nipped it in the bud. He gave me this messenger of Satan to buffet me. I think it's been ongoing for some time. And it just kept Paul weak, but dependent on the Lord. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, we don't know what it is. But whatever it is, it's painful, and you want to be delivered from it. So that goes on to the next lesson here, lesson three. The most common, natural, and understandable response to these kind of trials is to request deliverance from the Lord. We don't always know what will magnify Christ more. And so there's nothing wrong, per se, to request deliverance. Verse 8 Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. There's nothing wrong with asking God for deliverance from painful situations. And God's not angry with Paul. In this whole context, it does not say anywhere, and God was angry with Paul for asking. Matter of fact, who else asked 
three times to be delivered from a painful situation. Who's he talking to in his prayer? He says, I pray to the Lord, the Lord Jesus. A sympathetic high priest who can be tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He went right to Jesus and asked, Jesus, please take this from me. Three times he pleaded. Well, that's what the Lord did too. But he said the Lord in his, in his, the human nature part of Christ was, but not my will, but your will be done. So there's nothing wrong with requesting deliverance. And here's, when you're in ministry and you're wanting to serve the Lord, we think that there's only two ways, um, two options in, in the Christian life. The option of you're not suffering. Everything is going well. Pay all your bills. I mean, everything is just going super. You come home uh, as a father. I would come home. You know, my kids would be standing there with my wife, and we're here for you. Uh, we have had no problems today. We have no problems tonight. Uh, how can we serve you? Uh, you know, no problem. Everything is just going as well as you can imagine. And we think, that's how I can serve the Lord. We come over here, here's option two. Suffering. Painful, difficult situations going on in your life. Oh, Lord, take them away so I can come over here and serve you. That's how we think. But here... Nope. Here is the Lord's reply. Often, often God's reply to our petition. He comes up with a third option. The option is that this ongoing dependence on Christ, not immediate deliverance, is his good, acceptable, and perfect will. Often ongoing suffering is God's way to magnify Christ in our lives. And so in verse 9, he said, But he said to me, and if you looked at the word order, it says, Sufficient, emphatic position. Sufficient is my grace for you. Right at the beginning of the sentence, it's absolutely all you need. My grace, Jesus says, is sufficient for you. And he says, My power is made perfect in weakness. And God's reason for this reply is that the most usable, God-honoring, imperfect human instrument must know that they are weak and must be kept weak so that Christ's strength may be experienced and displayed in their lives. And thus God is glorified and we enjoy him and we fellowship with his sufferings in the process. The commentators, Jemus Fawcett and Brown, said, The Lord more needs our weakness than our strength. I want you to think about that one. The Lord more needs our weakness than our strength. We live in a culture of self-assertiveness and self-confidence and self, self, self. Our, our strength is God's rival. And they go on to say, but our weakness is his servant. We draw on his resources and showing forth his glory. Back in chapter four, it's, it's him. Christ is the treasure in earthen vessels, that the power and excellency may be of Christ, not of us. So our strength is not what the Lord's looking for. We can bring our weakness. We're all weak. We can bring our weakness. He brings the strength. 
His grace is sufficient. We go on to the fifth lesson. Our response by God's continuing grace is to be one of embracing God's will with joy. We resolve to magnify Christ by relying on his strength in our weakness. Jesus and all he is and gives goes beyond all that I'm afflicted with, and this is contentment. It's Jesus plus nothing equals contentment. And this is where Paul ends with a trial. If the Lord doesn't bring immediate deliverance, and you say, well, he told, Jesus told Paul, well, he doesn't speak to us outside of Scripture, so how would I get an answer? Well, how many times have you prayed for deliverance? Uh, a thousand, maybe 10,000 times? Well, more than likely, it's dependence, not deliverance. If it's probably been over three times and it hasn't been deliverance, is probably the answer is dependence. Ask people to pray for you, asking that you would be more dependent on the Lord and his grace rather than keep praying for deliverance from difficult situations. And that again, that is verses 9 and 10. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, he says, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. John Calvin said, Our weakness may seem, as it were, an obstacle in the way of God's perfecting his strength in us. Now think about that. We look at any kind of a trial like this as an obstacle that has to be removed to option number one. And then he goes on to say, Paul does not merely deny this, but maintains, on the other hand, that it is only when our weakness becomes apparent that God's strength is duly perfected. These trials that God has designed, not to deliver immediately, but to incur and and promote dependence on Christ's strength, is not an obstacle, it's a pathway to know and make Christ known. So meditation points, just a few take-home things to you can ponder on throughout the day and apply because hearing alone will not equal transformation. We have to process this into our own life. And if you said, well, I'm not in a trial right now, as the saying is so true, it's a truism, you either have just come out of one, you're in one, or you're about to go into one. And it may be that God is not going to bring immediate deliverance. We all will be delivered from trials one day. But it may not be immediate deliverance. And when that happens, here are a few things to do. Number one, reflect on God's goodness in your life. Just make sure that pride's not growing there, but humility is. That you are saying with the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans 11, for from him, through him, and to him belong all things and not taking credit or trespassing on God's glory. Reflect on God's goodness. Number two, you you ask yourself, has God apparently employed a thorn, we can call it a thorn, to actually prevent pride in your life? Is, Is it to keep you weak so that Christ can be seen in your life? Has he employed a thorn to just keep you weak? If so, 
Number three, then become a squatter at the throne of grace. Learn what it is to pray without ceasing right at the throne, not always for deliverance, but for dependence, for grace and mercy in time of need. There's always grace for the place that you're in. There's always grace for the place that you're in. Number four, meditate on specific promises that the Lord will help us and strengthen our hope in him. Promises like in Romans chapter 8, there are numerous promises there about affliction. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Uh, this light momentary affliction isn't to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. I mean, just think about the promises of God. Set your hope back on uh, the soon return of Christ in 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Numerous promises in Scripture. All of our suffering should take us to Christ and his suffering. All of our suffering should take us right to Christ and his suffering, which he did for us. Number five, ask yourself, how is this trial making me more like Jesus? He's always working in us to make us more like him. You go, wow, I want out of these trials. Well, how are you going to be like Jesus, who is a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, if you aren't in trials? How can you become like Jesus if you're not acquainted with uh, with grief or have any sorrows in your life? We want to be like Jesus glorified, but not like Jesus here on earth. So how is, it, how is this trial helping me become more like Jesus? Maybe learning con- contentment, compassion, thankfulness, endurance, obedience. Lastly, when you're in these trials and God hasn't sought to give you deliverance, but is seeking more on dependence and strength on Christ, ask yourself, How can I love and encourage others? How can I love and encourage others? And you say, well, Stuart, you've got that wrong. When you're in this kind of trial, you need everybody. You're the one who everyone should be asking, how can we help you and serve you? That's not what Jesus was doing on the cross. It's not what Paul was doing in prison. It's in those times the Lord wants us to be others-minded not on ourselves. How can God use me and be more fruitful in a very difficult time of suffering? Amen? Amen. Uh, let's let's uh, pray, and I, uh, I'll turn this back over to Pastor Brian. Father, thank you for this time together. It's uh, a review of what you instruct us in your word about your will, your moral, revealed, preceptive will. Lord, may we study it more, read it, meditate on it, seek to apply it for your glory. And Lord, where we have violated your revealed will, there is grace and mercy and forgiveness. May we take initiative steps and be aggressive about reading and studying your revealed will for us more today than yesterday. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.